Future City is made possible by McCormick and Company. Through its Flavor for Life program, McCormick helps teach kids and families in Baltimore how to replace salt, sugar, and fat. More information can be found at McCormickCorporation.com. Hey everybody, I'm Wes Moore and you're listening to Future City here on WYPR, the monthly show that explores innovative approaches to Baltimore's most pressing issues and where we move the conversation from what's wrong to what's next. On this month's show, we're discussing the future of policing. The killings of Mr. George Floyd and Ms. Rihanna Taylor sparked protests around the globe. A multiracial, multi-city movement has arisen, demanding changes to policing in the U.S. and demanding a recognition that black lives truly matter. But what kind of changes are we talking about? What kind of reforms are already underway in cities like Baltimore? And do those reforms go far enough? Do the police need to be defunded and disbanded as some protesters are demanding? Today, we check in with an advocate, an organizer, a former police officer, and Baltimore's top cop to hear what they think needs to happen to end police brutality. And to start today's show, I'm excited to be joined by one of the people who have been organizing protests locally against police brutality. Raleigh Hayes is the deputy director of Organizing Black and has been active as a young organizer in Baltimore for many years. Raleigh, thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, thank you for having me. I'm really excited to have this conversation. Well, we're, 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 I'm, I'm really excited to have it with you. And, and, and you've been organizing in Baltimore City around issues like excessive policing and inequitable policing for more than a decade. I mean, you, you are not new to this by any imagination. Um, so what are your thoughts about the current moment of protests that we are seeing and what are your hopes from it? So I think that in this current moment, one, I'm really excited about this moment because we're seeing people who uh, were not activated in the last moment. And when I say last moment, I mean like the uprisings um, of Ferguson and Baltimore who didn't necessarily understand at that moment, but have learned a lot over the last, you know, four to five years and um, have learned about the system. Right. Uh, that really shows to me in things like seeing protest signs where protesters are talking about qualified immunity, right? Qualified immunity was not necessarily a thing that everybody understood uh, prior to these killings because they just like people really just understood they wanted a conviction and they wanted to see a cop go to jail. Um, but that didn't happen, right? Like that didn't happen across the country um, in, in the last moment. And now we're at a moment where folks are really diving deeper into what is public safety and what does it mean to be safe? And we're seeing communities figure that out for themselves. And I think that's great. Our country and, and, and countries and governments all across the world were built to evolve. Right. So, like, I believe that we should not be attached to any one function of government because it might have served us in the past and it doesn't necessarily mean it serves us now. You, you brought something really important. And that is that's this component in this idea of safety. Just ex explain to the listener what exactly that means, because sometimes people think that that's exclusively about what criteria or categorization of policing that we're talking about. But it sounds like you're talking about something much bigger. What exactly do you mean when you're talking about safety? So I think safety is a holistic idea, right? Like the idea that you can exist and actually thrive, right? So you can live, you have a place to eat, place to sleep. Um, you know that those things exist for you and that you can then go and be a productive member of society because you have the resources necessary to focus on your wildest dreams, right? Like how many people had dreams of being this or that when they were a kid and because of the lack of resources um, in their community, you know, go into a life of community violence or crime. So for me, it's just like, how, what would it look like if we didn't crush kids' ability to dream and imagine what they could be because of the lack of options? 
that's that's the first thing to me because I started organizing as a as a youth organizer, right? Like as a as a kid in high school in Baltimore. And my first thought was, why is it that me and my classmates don't have the same resources as folks out in the county? And it's the same story. It's just around policing now, right? It's the same question around what resources are actually available for black communities. And, and so and it seems like that was the premise also uh, in looking at organizing black. Right. That, you know, that, you know, with this organization, you are the deputy director of organizing black. And so how exactly does that fit into the philosophy and the goals for organizing black? And then and where does that fit in both locally and nationally when it comes to other movements that are happening around uh, around policing brutality? So the divest invest uh campaigns have existed way before uh, Mike Brown or Freddie Gray. They come from the study of police budgets, right? Like the idea of safety uh, that police create is that they, they make people safe, right? Like that is just categorically false, right? We don't call the police typically before a crime has been committed. We call them after. That tells you that they are mostly reactionary. Police in communities still don't actually prevent crimes from happening because we all could literally go on the Internet or call somebody that lives in Baltimore and they can tell you about the time they saw something happen. And it was a police officer sitting across the street, sitting in their car, not doing anything. The idea that police actually create safety is just false. Right. And so, like, as an abolitionist and as a part of an abolitionist organization, we actually uh, believe that, you know, there are communities in America where abolition actually already exists. Right. And it's really clear. So, like, if you go into Roland Park in Baltimore, how many cops are you going to see hanging around if there's not a protest or black people there? You're not really going to see any. Right. And so that tells me that that communities can actually live and exist and thrive without policing. That can happen. The only difference between the two communities is the access to resources those community members have. Uh, With Organizing Black, there's a call to see a 50 percent reduction of of Baltimore's police department uh, reallocated for other mechanisms within the community. What kind of investments uh, would you want to see with the money? And, ex- and, ex- and explain to us also places where people have been successful in terms of reallocation of capital from policing departments and how it actually is, has led to a, a, a seismic improvement in not just police community relations, but also just the overall, overall community satisfaction. So I think that we're seeing victories around this reallocation happening in real time right now all around the country. I will be the first to say that I'm not 100%, I don't have 100% proof that it is going to work. But what I do have is proof that policing in this country doesn't work as is, right? Like Baltimore has invested in its police department. In the last decade, the, the budget has grown over 2,000%, right? But crime has not gone down. That, that The perception of safety has not gone up. Um, and so, you know, I use this analogy. If you ask someone to fix your roof, right, and they do it. And then it leaks again. And then you put more money into it with, a, with that same company. Right. And then it leaks again. Do you keep paying them or do you find something else? Right. And the, the average person is going to be like, I'm going to find another company or an, another way to do this because this is obviously not working. And so from just a, a very basic economic standpoint, you should not put money into something that doesn't work. The police department is the only department that is not evaluated, really, um, is not audited. They continue to get money. They don't meet metrics. The city council has asked for years, actually, for, for you know information, and they don't they don't have any accountability. Yet we still think we should give them money because we have in this country we had this idea that policing has always exist mm-hmm. existed, and that's just not true. So when we think about what that could actually look like, uh, you know, it, it, for a lot of people, this feels like a heavy stretch. This feels like a a, a scary concept, but really, in actuality, what you're saying is is not only do we a have practices of what that looks like within our own city, 
but actually it's something when we're thinking about where the city actually is and where it could actually model itself after some successful models elsewhere, that this is something that uh, is, 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 a, is a natural progression from the type of inequities and inequalities that we've seen thus far. Correct. So I, I definitely think this is a natural, this in a lot of ways is the healing aspect of the results of the war on drugs, right? Like we, we know that the war on drugs uh, disproportionately arrested black people and charged them with high crimes. And that did untold damage to communities across this country. Right. And so what we're looking at is how do we both create safety and, you know, repair that harm. And so like we have programs like Baltimore ceasefire, right. Who a lot of people thought wouldn't work when it started and it's working better and better each time they do a ceasefire weekend, right. Mm -hmm. That kind of community violence, interruption, safe streets, Rose street, right. Those things work. And so the question about is how do we bring it to scale? Instead of investing in things that we know don't work. Yeah. We know BPD's clearance rate is less than 50%. So to me as an individual, right, that means you could flip a coin about whether or not you should commit a crime. And that's your chances of getting caught. Mm -hmm. But lower, right? And that shouldn't be the case. Right? Like one, people shouldn't have to feel as though they need to commit crime to survive. And two, if we're going to pay for a service, it shouldn't have less than a 50% success rate. Yeah. That's right. But also, I think that part partially comes down to comes down to jurisdictional authority, right? I mean, you know, we we know that, for example, the Baltimore City Police Department right now is a state agency, um, and and I you know for for a lot of people that local control of the police has been a focus for advocates in Baltimore for for years, and and you know a lot of it is that all these reformation avenues. Uh, because of jurisdictional authority, become much more complicated to be able to navigate. How high of a priority do you think that the local control of police should be? And uh, if you feel like that is something important, why do you think it's something that should be of higher importance? So we understand at Organizing Black local control to be a high priority. One, because people that don't live in the city shouldn't have anything to say about how the communities in the city uh create their own safety, right? There are 166 or maybe more uh, state delegates in the General Assembly. Out of them, I think it's like 10 or so, a little bit over 10, maybe 20, like that are Baltimore City elected officials. So that's 140 some odd people who don't live in the city, may or may not work in the city, but have an opinion about how the city should spend its resources and create its own safety. And I don't think that's okay, right? Like. You don't want someone coming in your house to tell you how to, to keep your house safe. So right. why should we do that as a city? And I think it's important because, again, as abolitionists, I understand the step towards the structural steps towards abolition. Right. Like abolition doesn't happen overnight. There has to be some type of plan, some strategy that allows us to actively create the resources we want to see while at the same time dismantling the police department. And part of that is just simple resources of cash. Right. Like we can't create new things if we don't have the capital. And right now you could literally fund all of Baltimore City's government off the police department's budget. Mm. Mm. Right. Like when every single other city service and agency can fit inside one agency's budget, that is a problem. So let me let me ask one final question. then. so what do you think it's going to take for black people to feel safer in this city and in this country? I think we have to, to get back to some of the things that we used to do prior to the war on drugs and over-policing of our communities, which is actually just talk to people who we live next to, right? Like, you should actually know the people in your community, and they should know you. And yes, people are like, oh, mind your business. But at the same time, safety is a collective responsibility, right? Like In the same way that we talk about following the law and ensuring that 
people are taking out their trash or cleaning up our community. Like all that is actually a collective responsibility that we should have some stake in, right? Like there's no reason why you want your community to be unsafe. So you should have some stake in, and do a little effort, right? And that can just be as simple as saying hi to your neighbors and knowing their names, mm-hmm. right? There's something to be said about just caring about your fellow person, right? Like just having a little empathy. What I would like to see is communities have the self-determination um, through participatory budgeting and other ways to like dream about what the safety look like in their communities, right? Because I also understand there are some communities, particularly of older folks, who believe police keep them safe. Part of being an organizer is not saying that we have the only right way, but giving people the freedom to choose what they want. And that's really, I think, what we want is the freedom to choose what safety looks like for us in our communities. You've been listening to Future City here on 88.1 WYPR, and I've been speaking with Raleigh Hayes, who's the Deputy Director of Organizing Black. Raleigh, thank you so much for not just your, not just for being here today, but for your leadership uh, and for your service throughout these times and, and beyond. We really appreciate it. No problem. Thank you for having me, and I look forward to the next time I get to come back. Absolutely. So we have to take a brief break, but do not go away. When we come back, we'll hear from Baltimore's Police Commissioner, Michael Harrison, and then from former Baltimore City Detective, Debbie Ramsey, about how they want to see the police department here change. We'll be right back. Welcome back. I'm Wes Moore, and you're listening to Future City here on 88.1 WYPR, the monthly show that explores innovative approaches to Baltimore's most pressing issues and where we move the conversation from what's wrong to what's next. On this month's show, we're discussing policing in Baltimore and policing beyond and what the movement to end police brutality means for not just Baltimore today, but for Baltimore tomorrow. Now, early in the show, we heard from one of the people organizing protests against police violence, but now we are honored to be joined by Baltimore City Police Commissioner Michael Harrison. He came on as Baltimore's top cop last year after leaving the force in New Orleans. Commissioner Harrison, thank you so much for joining and welcome to the show. Oh, thank you, Wes, for having me. And and thank you for your leadership, particularly in this moment. And uh, but, you know, I want to start with a question of what do you think of the protests that are happening right now against inequitable policing that are happening around the country? Well, first of all, protests and the protesters are, number one, justified and they're very necessary right now. And this is a a pivotal moment, uh, not just for the profession of policing, but it's a pivotal moment for for America and for cities in America and for people who live in those cities uh, who, who rely and depend on police for public safety and protection and for relationships. And what you're seeing uh, is you're seeing people speak out openly about what's wrong with policing and what uh, people have de- been demanding and expecting for years, maybe even generations. Uh, but sometimes it takes tragedy to kind of you know make people rise up and really put their feet down to demand uh, what they're due. Here in Baltimore, you know, I'm leading a department that's in transformation. And uh, while we have a very long way to go, I'll be the first to admit that the Baltimore Police Department is about three years into the transformation that what you see is being demanded of people here in Baltimore and everywhere. So I applaud uh, protesters, especially those who are doing it peacefully. Taking context in this moment is is incredibly important. And I think about the context of what you found when you first came to the department. I mean, you've been police commissioner now for, for you know, a little over a year. But the reality is when you came on board, you, uh, you know, within within weeks 
find yourself in a position where we had the former mayor uh, under charge and investigation, uh, a department that's under consent decree. So, you know, this is also not something that's that's new for you. When you think about the work that you had to do in New Orleans, similar type of conditions, similar areas where you had a police department, where in order to move forward, you really also had to examine backwards. You had to examine you know what was it that it caused the police department to need have to need the reformation uh, that you then led it through? How do you think about the times and the process? Uh, when I say the process, the things you had to do, and also the time that it took in order to make that change within New Orleans. What are the things that you see as similarities between what you're seeing now in Baltimore and the differences that you saw in New Orleans when you had to come in and, and do a real reformation of that department? The dynamics are very much the same. Both cities have had issues with poverty and poor education systems and all of the social ills that either push people to war crime and drive people to war crime. And lastly, both cities struggle with high murder rate. New Orleans was the murder capital for many years. You know, with a population of less than 500,000 in the mid-90s, we had 430-plus murders. Um, and while, while we deal with 300-plus here, I remember those times and what it took to change that, and it, it's the things that we're doing now, fixing the, the department from the inside out, creating a department of accountability and transparency, a department that the officers can be proud of, that the citizens can be proud of, that treats people with dignity and respect and builds relationships through community engagement and community collaboration, and that's how we did it then, that's what we're doing now. The, the thing about it, I grew up in that department, and the citizens of, of New Orleans grew up there, and when I became the chief, there was an expectation that we would do it, but the people were familiar with the dynamics. I'm the outsider here, and the, the frustration level is very high, so the expectations are that I will come and reduce it really quickly, it, it, but it doesn't work that way. And, mm -hmm. and though there's the local expectation that it would happen that way, I think the fact that we're transforming the department to create a well-oiled, high-performing, accountable, transparent department, that is how we actually create the performance metric that will reduce the murder rate over time. So the difference is there is an expectation that it will happen fast. That was not the expectation in New Orleans. And it seems like the, the, the prerequisite for, for that and what we're talking about is trust, right? And so it's, you know, and yes. trust really is one of these things where it is, it's the most difficult thing in the world to build. It's the easiest thing to lose. It's something that takes time. And you, and you mentioned this idea and the word community. What exactly do you mean by community policing programs? And then what role do you think that has to play when it comes to transforming police community relations and this idea of building up this level of trust? You make a good point. The first thing we have to do is internally create messaging that moves us away from the warrior mentality into the guardian mentality and changes the department into a community-oriented, community-minded, community-collaborative police department. I'm here for two things, to bring down the crime and murder rate, but to transform the department because we're in a federal consent decree. That requires changing the narrative. Here's the narrative that you hear all the time, Wes, police and community, as if we're two distinct entities. Mm. We are part of the community we serve. So there is no distinction between police and community, but I have to get our officers to buy into that. It takes a lot because culture change is the hardest to change. Policy creation is easy. Culture change is hard. And so getting the officers to see it, but then secondly, getting the people 
of this city to see it, that we are part of the community, but we have done things and police in other places have done things to break that trust and to, to tarnish those relationships where, you know, people really don't feel like we're a part of the community. And even we, we don't feel like it sometimes. Norm. The police oftentimes are the first responders in almost every situation within our society, right? Whether it is a breaking and entering, whether it is a person having a, 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 a mental health breakdown, whether it is a, a person shooting off fireworks. Should we be having conversations about both the sharing of responsibilities, so it's not always the police that are the first ones who are getting called in, regardless of what the situation is, um, but also thinking about how can we be then clear about first line of actions, first lines of responsibilities, and how much does that factor into how you would think about a, 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 a rethinking of policing roles in our community? We are asked to be all things to all people because there has been such a, a, a lack of governmental presence in the community. To that point, lack of nonprofit and all the other social services. And things have not been either created or they were created and not funded and staffed properly to deliver services to deal with the issues that are perhaps not for police. I personally and professionally think that we should not be responding to things that, number one, we're ill-equipped to handle. There are many things, and you pointed out one, dealing with mental illness. That's something that others and other people in other disciplines are better prepared, better trained to handle. Now, what has happened is, in the absence of having people to do it, and in the absence of having place to bring people, the police who are the face and the 24-hour immediate response have, have taken on that role because we were kind of forced into doing something as opposed to the government doing nothing. And there are more appropriate things that we should be doing, protecting people from violent crime, apprehending people who commit violent crime, and building those relationships uh, with young people and with people in the community that would help us create more public safety. Now I'll talk about this defund police movement that takes money away now to move into other disciplines that are either not built yet or not sufficiently able to handle what we may pass off to them right now. Mm. Um, and so those are the interesting conversations that America is having. I certainly advocate for all those programs to handle the social ills that police should not be handling. But since we've been handling them for so many generations, it's, it's very difficult to not create a gap in services by defunding now to pass on to something that's not ready to receive it. Mm. And then so along those lines, uh, when we talk about things that are very much in a national conversation right now, you know, we also have advocates who have been pushing for an ending of the Law Enforcement Officers Bill of Rights and saying it prevents local police from being held accountable. What, what is your position on the, on, the, uh, on the Law Enforcement Officers Bill of Rights? And is that something that needs to be adjusted or reevaluated? It absolutely needs to be reevaluated and adjusted to give policing executives the autonomy an authority to take immediate action when things are brought to our attention, when members of our agencies uh, step across the line and do the absolute wrong thing. It inhibits us from making real reform. You, while it may favor and benefit the officers, it certainly doesn't benefit community collaboration uh, and it certainly doesn't build trust. It actually harms trust. So I certainly agree that it should be adjusted and give, giving leaders the ability to make the necessary reforms that people are now demanding. Hmm. Are there other either departments or jurisdictions 
that are doing things on certain facets, and it could be some a small facet of when you're thinking about the future of policing, that you're just like, that's interesting. And I'd love to be able to figure out a way to incorporate that, if not now, maybe sometime in the future, a way to incorporate it into the way we're thinking about the future of policing in Baltimore. Absolutely, man. And, uh, you know, this is uh, because New Orleans was under a federal consent decree, just like we are, and they are you know, approaching their eighth year and, and hopefully will be exiting. So there are a number of things that New Orleans built that are, are just uh, best practices because they're, they were in and still remain in that consent decree. There are things like peer intervention, a program called EPIC, our ethical policing is courageous. Peer intervention, that we that absolutely is a best practice that is working there and in so many other places. We're bringing it here, and we're about to launch that training here, not just because the country is asking for peer intervention as part of reform, but it's a great thing to have, and we had always been planning to do it. But yes, there are programs in other departments because other leaders are, are you know, are forward-leaning and forward-thinking, and the smart leader looks around and finds what works in other places and then we model either that behavior or that performance or that leadership model to bring it to where we are and implement it and model it so that it can work here. And I think some of what Baltimore has suffered from is not being aware or connected to what good policing is in other places. You know, when I arrived, bringing a lot of change and reform was foreign to a lot of people. And so, you know, but it's beginning to take hold. And I think we always have to look around to find what's working well somewhere else and how we can model it and then implement it to where it works and fits in our agency. I've been talking with Baltimore City Police Commissioner Michael Harrison. Commissioner Harrison, thanks again for joining us. Thank you so much. I enjoyed being with you and thank you for having me. Always. Now, we'll hear from another law enforcement perspective from Debbie Ramsey, a former Baltimore City Police detective who is now a speaker for the Law Enforcement Action Partnership. Detective Ramsey, thank you so much for joining us on Future City. You're welcome. Happy to be here. So you spent 12 years in the Baltimore City Police Department, everything from being a community policing officer, a patrol officer, and then a detective. What are your thoughts about the protests that we have seen over the past month against police violence? Just to start off with, I am a firm believer that the community are the police and the police are the community because we, we recruit from the community. When I came on in the um, early to mid-80s, it was during a time when Baltimore City residents, they demanded that their police department look more like them, which really opened the door for people like me as a black woman to go into a predominantly historically white male profession with guns. So um, I was, it was a call to action. And Certain communities, they can build upon trust with their police department. Let's just say white communities, they have the luxury to build upon trust. And the black community, we don't have that luxury. I knew I was going to a predominantly white male profession, but guess what? The police department knew they were getting a black woman. I was able to police that was comfortable to my core values with compassion and to um, better understand the culture of Baltimore and Baltimore at that time predominantly black and it still is. So yeah. I feel very comfortable in that community. But when you're thinking about it from a, a personal comfort perspective versus a training perspective, you've always felt very comfortable with inside the, the community boat, but how was that trained 
to you? Or, or, or was that something that you felt was just inherent? How do we make people who might not have that inherent sense of connection, make them feel a sense of connection towards a community? If you do not have a love for community, then I do not know how you can be an effective police officer. There's one thing I did learn that if effective policing and crime cannot coexist in the same space. So I came on board, I'm, I'm a Baltimore native. I was born in East Baltimore, Carolina, East Preston Street. So my love of community, understand the community and culture, because I am the community. So I love myself. <laughs> I love All myself. Right. I love myself. You can't teach that in the academy. What I got from the academy were skills to be an effective police officer, not to be effective in loving the community or understanding the community or uh, getting to know the community. I came with that, which is why it goes back to the community wanted blacks and women and men and people that could relate to them. Because if you, if you cannot relate, how are you going to have empathy and sympathy? So you can't teach that in the academy, which I'm a firm believer that if you're going to have a police department, because the police department is very unique. It's not like the fire department. I mean, it's a lot of power there. So if you're going to give that kind of power to a person, that person just better love that community, understand, and have some sympathy and empathy. And from out of that, you you layer yourself with professional um, uh, training and, and defense tactics. And we had to go to college and get psychology and how to write reports. We took English classes. So I knew how to put a subject and predicate together for it to agree, but we still had to take those type of courses so that we could be to build upon that. So, but let's say if you come into that profession and you do not have love of community, how you build upon that? You can't. You know, you have said that Baltimore can't arrest and prosecute its way out of a violence epidemic. Uh, you know, pointing towards a stronger reliance on violence prevention programs like Safe Streets and and your organization, uh, you know, Unified Efforts. So what do you think it will take to to scale up violence prevention programs so that they can have wider impacts across the city and frankly, uh, how to then take away from the responsibility of the police of having to then go in and police these types of actions in the first place? So there are some calls that do not necessarily require uh, deadly force or to be that aggressive or to cause a SWAT team, I found oftentimes that the cause of service uh, really relate to quality of life. Landlord-tenant dispute, um, a, a loud, you know, dog next door or a, a neighbors having conflict with one another. I would like to see the community educated. Instead of just having a knee-jerk reaction, calling 911 for everything from a squirrel in the attic to, you know, your child hasn't come home from school one time and you're concerned, and rightfully so, I would be too. I think we need to re-educate the community, and that looks like empowerment. When we educate, we empower. If the community only knew that they have the power to resolve so many of these problems themselves without calling 911, uh, I, I think it's a joint effort. That's, that's in my opinion, what I, I think could, could really benefit. And another thing, I was also a detective in the Internal Investigation Division. If an officer was charged with misconduct, whatever, police brutality, whatever, if someone saw that officer doing that and, and, and that citizen says, hey, officer, I saw what you did and that's not right and I'm going to file a complaint. 90% of the time, that officer would arrest that person to diminish their credibility. So I would like to see the community be educated on if you're going to file a complaint, make sure you do it in an intelligent way. 
not to advertise it, because I saw so many of those cases. And so by the time those cases got to us to investigate, it looks like let's make a deal. The person's only making this report because they were arrested and they're trying to get out of it. So it goes both ways. And if we can figure out a way how we could just come together and be on the same page, we should all want the same thing, to be safe to respect one another and appreciate the police department and for the police department to appreciate the people that they're supposed to be serving. Well, and so let me ask you one more question then. As you are seeing the protests taking place, the calls for reforms, are you hopeful right now, and maybe I should say more hopeful than ever before, that we will be able to come up with uh, with solutions that, uh, that, that everybody believes is gonna be a movement in the, in, in the way towards progress? Absolutely. I, I, I have 100% faith in police departments. I have 100% faith in communities. And I have 100% faith in this movement that is going forward. So I'm very hopeful that uh, we will all be able to coexist and feel um, uh, there is a sense of uh, respect. And um, that goes to systemic racism. If we just sit down and not take it so personally, and figure out, okay, this is this is best for you, best for me. It's really best to keep officers safe as well as for the community to feel safe. Of course, we can come down and sit at the table and figure this out. Detective Ramsey, thank you so much for not just your time today, but also for your leadership. And uh, and we truly appreciate everything that you're doing to bring clarity uh, and, and vision to this situation here. Thanks for making time today. You're welcome. I'm Wes Moore, and you're listening to Future City here on 88.1 WYPR. We'll have to take a brief break, but do not go away. When we come back, we'll zoom out and explore how other cities are addressing police brutality. Don't go away. Welcome back. I'm Wes Moore, and you're listening to Future City here on 88.1 WYPR the monthly show that explores innovative approaches to Baltimore's most pressing issues and then moves the conversation from what's wrong to what's next. On this month's show, we're discussing police inequities and police brutality. And to close out the show, we're talking to Linda Garcia. Linda Garcia is the Policing Campaign Director for the Leadership Conference on Civil and Human Rights. Before joining the Leadership Conference and the Education Fund, Linda served as a trial attorney in the special litigation section in the Civil Rights Division of the Department of Justice, where she also conducted pattern or practice investigations of law enforcement agencies and enforced consent decrees to ensure constitutional and biased-free policing. Linda, thank you so much for joining us today. No, thank you for having me. And so, you know, Linda, you helped enforce consent decrees during your time at the Justice Department, and the Baltimore Police Department is under a consent decree now. What do you think Baltimore could learn from other cities that have been under consent decrees? And how have you seen this consent decree show itself? Sure. So, you know, I want to start by saying that the consent decree process is a hopeful one. Um, and that the Department of Justice consent decrees that we saw towards the end of the Obama administration really included a lot of reform measures that, if implemented the right way, could have the promise of really bringing about systemic reform. But those have to have this patience because they are very long processes. Um, When you are dealing with trying to structurally change institutions that have 
you know, a, a history of, you know, racism and misconduct, it doesn't happen overnight. And so, you know, the Baltimore consent decree that was entered into in, uh, so is 2017, you know, I think it's three years in and there are promising things that it includes. Um, I think it's just gonna, like I said, it, it's the long haul. It's the, it's the long game. And so when we talk about the long game, uh, when we've seen examples of consent decrees that have come in, been successful, and ones that have been not so successful, mm-hmm. what are the things that we have seen and learned from the ones that have been successful? And how exactly do we go about a process of making that, uh, of, of really fulfilling that every single time one of these uh, consent decrees had to be issued? Sure. I mean, look, there's different examples of different jurisdictions. Um, Some of the more successful consent decrees have been in New Orleans and in Seattle. Both of those jurisdictions, they came closer or in process of substantial compliance, which is when um, the court deems that you're, you know, you've substantially met most of the provisions of the consent decree and are essentially doing a lot better. And we've seen innovative approaches like in New Orleans, the program EPIC, which is the Ethical Policing is Courageous. It's a peer intervention program in which officers intervene in police misconduct. And this really kind of changed, number one, the culture, but also, um, you know, the level of use of force that was happening. And I'll say this, though, a consent decree cannot change every single problem in a, in a department. And, it, and, you know, in the Department of Justice is always when, you know, they go into communities, they, they talk about that because a critical component in really bringing about the structural change that's needed in policing is the community component and communities being there um, hand in hand through this, this process. And also knowing that at some point the Department of Justice leaves, it might be in five years, it might be in 10, hopefully it's not 10, but then they're out and then all that's left. And, and really for the police department to continue to be accountable to the changes that they've made, you need the communities and the communities conducting that oversight and holding them accountable. So one of the reform measures that we talk about is really how are we going to address and approach fair policing and fair funding of that of moving forward. And so when we talk about that, because especially right now, so much of the conversation has been about defunding the police and, and really, and you said that defunding is really about balancing the budget in a different mm-hmm. kind that emphasizes other, other kinds of services that the community needs, but that the police might not necessarily be in the best position to perform. So, so how do you think about the funding component being a core mm-hmm. part of the reform component? Well, I mean, you, look, you, you hit the nail on the head. It is about where we're spending the money, how we're balancing the budgets. I like to put it this way. No family sits around the kitchen table to figure out their budget and says, oh, let's spend 50% of our money on like a home security system, right? And my kids like don't have a, like the educational things that they need and we don't have food on the table. And it's the same sort of analysis when we're looking at cities and what they're doing. In Baltimore, for example, you know, one of the really exciting things that they had in the consent decree was a provision where um, the city had to conduct an assessment to identify gaps in the behavioral health system and recommend solutions. And what's happening there, um, you know, so there was a stopgap analysis and it identified and made all these recommendations about expanding street outreach workers and partnering with peer organizations and just really improving and expanding community-based behavioral health care. And that's a funding question, right? Because then what it's saying there is you need these other services and this is what you should be 
paying for. And you don't have to keep funneling all this money into like really what are failed solutions through law enforcement. It doesn't work. Police like addressing these issues is not the answer. And we keep seeing, we, you know, we just kind of keep repeating the same mistakes over and over. Um, so when folks are talking about defunding, I mean, that is really what it's about. It's where you're, you're putting your money um, and the investments that you're making. And, uh, you know, uh, I think it really it speaks to the value systems that folks have. And if you care about community health, community well-being, I think a lot of people are realizing that you have to invest in the services that promote those things and support those things. And sending people that are trained to use guns to address these other issues and behavioral health issues, mental health crises, um, substance use issues, even like school discipline is not the answer, right? That is why we're having this talk, you know, the conversation is moving to this conversation about money and where it's flowing. And so the policing of nonviolent crimes, such as, you know, the illicit use of drugs or selling loose cigarettes. Mm -hmm. I mean, these are things that have in our history and led to violent encounters, mm -hmm. uh, you know, for those in the death of those accused of those crimes. So that's the kind of thing that you think that that violence can be stopped if we actually just reconfigure what we're asking our police departments to actually take on as responsibilities. Oh, yes, 100 percent. Look. Um, Eric Gardner was selling loose cigarettes. George Floyd was supposedly using a counterfeit $20 bill. Walter Scott had a broken tail. I mean, it is like all these quote unquote offenses that, that do not really have a public safety component to them better that aren't law enforcement questions. And it's those points every time you create an opportunity for an interaction with law enforcement, you're creating the possibility that that is going to be escalated and it's going to end up in a violent use of force. So removing police from that and finding, you know, other solutions to address what are oftentimes acts of um, survival, um, right? If someone's using counterfeit bills and, and, you know, I don't, we don't know all the facts around what happened with George Floyd, but if they are in the middle of a pandemic where like the unemployment rate in the country is the highest it's ever been, like is having a cop come to arrest them really what we should be doing as a society? Right. And so, so, uh, so one final question I have is that, you know, you were an attorney in the civil rights division of the justice department and, and, you know, right now, many of the conversations we're having are a split conversation between what the federal side can do versus what local and municipal jurisdictions can actually pull off when it comes to its policing. Mm -hmm. Uh, mm -hmm. you know, so having that experience and, and you've seen this from a variety of different perspectives, what do you think is necessary on the federal level? to bring about the change that we want to see versus what things have to be done on the local side that the federal government can have influence, but not necessarily yeah. the decision-making authority on. Look, I mean, you're getting at the complex nature of law enforcement and it's how it's structured in this country. We have 18,000 law enforcement agencies. They're mainly state and local, right? And each one of them is its own fiefdom, has its own policies, and they're run really kind of almost independently. And of course, there's like local laws and state laws that say what they can and can't do in a lot of ways. Um, but the federal government plays a really important role, right? I mean, the reason we have federal intervention when there's civil rights violations is because we found from the civil rights era, you know, and even during segregation that 
if civil rights are being violated and you can't trust those local jurisdictions to address the problems, you need the force of the federal government to come in. So it's really two parallel tracks. At the local levels, you know, city councils control the budgets, mayors appoint the chiefs, and, and that is where you can set policies and you set your budgets. The federal government you know, there's two pieces. They can, through um, legislation, like what's been introduced, the Justice and Policing Act, um, incentivize, right? They can't tell local jurisdictions what to do, but they can incentivize what they can and can't do through federal funding um, and conditioning federal funding on the adoption and implementation of, you know, policies like no, like chokehold bans. But at the same time, you do have outfits within the Department of Justice, like the Civil Rights Division, the special litigation section that can come in, conduct these, you know, extensive um, investigations, uh, pattern and practice investigations like they did in Baltimore. And those are really important for those cities, a city like Baltimore, but even more just on a national level, because when the Department of Justice goes in and digs in like that and, you know, develops all this evidence of constitutional violations, it, it also sets an example, right? And, and it exposes the problems. And I think the, you know, real value of the consent decrees um, is not only um, for the reform in those cities, but also that they can serve as models for other cities in terms of, you know, the changes that they should make and, and you know, the policies and programs that they should implement um, to ensure that folks' civil rights are protected and, and people, you know, use of force, excessive use of force isn't happening. I've been speaking with Linda Garcia, Policing Campaign Director for the Leadership Conference on Civil and Human Rights. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. And I want to thank all of our guests today. Relief Hayes, who's the Deputy Director of Organizing Black, Baltimore City Police Commissioner, Michael Harrison. Debbie Ramsey, a former Baltimore City Police Detective and a speaker for the Law Enforcement Action Partnership. And Linda Garcia, Policing Campaign Director for the Leadership Conference of Civil and Human Rights. Before we close out, as always, I want to leave with a few thoughts. And so we find ourselves in a very complicated moment where the homicide rate continues to spiral out of control. And while the traditional response of simply increasing police presence feels like the default solution, but not only are there very real and present budgetary challenges, there are also efficacy challenges where we have to acknowledge that the history of inequitable policing in this city is real and shades every conversation around the Baltimore City Police Department's role in addressing crime. We have heard this hour from a number of people who all want to see a more just and equitable policing system, but don't always agree on how to get there. That's understandable. We have to understand that the consent decree that the Baltimore City Police Department entered into years back with the Department of Justice was earned. And while it has not been the only system that has failed many Baltimoreans, its well-documented abuses are not lost on many people that call this place home. Police officers, should not simply be in communities. They must have the mindset of being of the community. Officers need to be held to as high a standard, if not higher, than the citizens that they are asked to police. And the sound of a police siren should have the same pitch, regardless of what neighborhood you happen to be in. If we truly want our future city to be safe for everyone, that means there needs to be trust and full accountability between law enforcement and the community they are sworn to protect. 
Future City is produced and edited by Mark Gunnery. We welcome your feedback, and you can email us with your thoughts and questions about the show at futurecity at wypr.org. Also, feel free to contact me directly on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. All of them are at I am Westmore. If you want to learn more about some of the people and organizations that we heard from today, or if you want to listen to previous episodes, please visit wypr.org and look for Future City under the Program and Features tab. Future City airs on WYPR on the third Wednesday of each month at 1 p.m. and then again at 9 p.m. So until next time, for 88.1 WYPR, your NPR news station, I'm Wes Moore. Future City is made possible by McCormick and Company. Through its Flavor for Life program, McCormick helps teach kids and families in Baltimore how to replace salt, sugar, and fat. More information can be found at McCormickCorporation.com.